Broadcasting from Daksu Village on Jeju Island, this is The Korea File, a weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, South Korea is one of very few developed nations to have maintained a shamanic heritage over thousands of years. Although shamanism's influence has diminished on the Korean mainland in the face of modernization, government oppression, and generational cultural shifts in recent decades, it's still widely practiced on Jeju by a diminishing but significant number of elderly islanders. Here's writers Anne Hilty and Hong Sun Young from a 2013 piece in the Jeju Weekly magazine. On Jeju, shamanism has long been the core of village life. In its village-based shamanistic system, all conflict within a village was expected to be resolved prior to the communal rituals in order to help ensure the gods' benevolence and village prosperity. Jeju's traditionally egalitarian society was based upon mutual aid. Its matrifocal structure included powerful female deities and diving women, or henya, as the primary economic force. Filmmaker, writer, and photographer Joy Rosatano spent more than three years collecting myths from the remaining practitioners of Jeju shamanism. His documentary, At Search for Spirits on the Island of Rocks, Wind, and Women, premiered at the 2014 Jeju Women's Film Festival, and a book of his photography entitled Spirits, Jeju Island Shamanic Shrines, was released last week. This is the second of a two-part conversation. Post-Japanese occupation era brought an incredible amount of chaos and violence to Jeju, with as many as 30,000 islanders killed in what's come to be known as the April 3rd Jeju Uprising. How did the trauma of this period affect shamanism on Jeju? Mm, it, it fed shamanism in a way. Um, there are a lot of rituals that um, address... Uh, the April 3rd uprising. Um, there was even a program there was even a program at Hala Hospital here in Jeju, um, a kind of seminar for the doctors so they could kind of understand the role that shamanism helped in psychological healing. So that's that's been a huge thing. I mean, the shamans are all experts. The traditional shamans are all experts in kind of helping people through that kind of... Uh, you know, they're grieving and kind of the psychological help that they need from from that situation. I mean, yeah, yeah, Sasam, April 3rd, is addressed at pretty much every goot. Um, they pray for, at you know, every ceremony. This, at, every, at every ceremony. And, uh, yeah, of course, like uh, when you have a, a funeral in, in Jeju, um, the funeral, the, it's called the Guiyang Puli, it's, it's a funerary ceremony. You have to have, uh, that's done three times. So it's done right after someone dies and then maybe a year later. And sometimes the third one can be five or ten years later, you know. So there, there are situations where those types of ceremonies are being performed for a family member many years later, you know, 20 or 30 years later. Or, or kind of mass versions of that ceremony are being performed for all of the 30,000 dead. That, that's quite a common thing. So um, it's more of a personal thing. I think that uh, I think it is the shaman's responsibility to address that in a religious way, and uh, I think that they counsel a lot of people who have dealt with those issues. And a lot of the shamans have that in their family as well. You've met so many elderly people through your years of research, so you must have heard some stories. Oh, I've heard. Yeah, I mean, it it 
It's kind of tattooed on everything, eh? It is, yeah, yeah. It's it's everywhere. I, I feel like uh, I don't think that uh, I would want to be a a war correspondent because the things that I've heard uh, told to me about the past were str- are strong. They're very stark and they kind of stick in my mind now. Um, I think about a lot of the stuff that 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 mostly women that a lot of the women have told me and I never ask about the massacre but they seem to volunteer that they want to talk to uh, to me about it you know they seem to want to get it off their chest or or maybe because I'm foreign or maybe they're just kind of uh, ready to address things that have happened but they contrary to what I would have thought there a lot of people are pretty open about their experiences after the killing stopped in 1948, the history of 4-3 was suppressed for 45 years. So how has shamanism helped Jeju's people cope with this tragic history? I think that um, the way that uh, the massacre has been uncovered and related to the public in Jeju is a huge victory. It's, it's really unbelievable. I mean, there are different regions in the world where things like this happened, and it, it has never come to light, or it's come to light in a way where... Um, you know, the population is, is, uh, either against it or tries to suppress the, the few people who are, who are trying to bring it to light. But in Jeju, I think it was pretty much embraced and, and the way that they were able to kind of face what happened is, is a really amazing thing. So I think when, when rituals are performed, especially public rituals for the, for the massacre, there's a sense of pride. I think, I think it, it, people feel like they have conquered uh, the repression that was waged against them. And, yeah, definitely there's a sense of pride. They, they had a, a, a ceremony at the harbor a couple years ago, and one of Jeju's famous shamans led the ceremony to the sea god also. But they also did a section of the ceremony for the people that were lost in April 3rd. And I could really, like, it was kind of palatable, like, the, the feeling of pride. You know, they had poets come, people sang songs about it. There were... Uh, you know, it, it took two or three hours for the shaman to read out all the names of the dead, you know, all the recorded names of the dead. There were people, elderly people there waiting to hear the, the name of their ancestor, you know, that's important. The, that's important. The, the shaman is transmitting uh, the concern of the living to the god, and it's important for the elderly to hear that name so they can, they know that the gods are taking care of the deceased person, you know. So you'll see a lot of people waiting for those names and crying, you know, and, and it's a really moving thing. And, and uh, yeah, it is, it, there's really a sense of pride, I think, and, and, and people are coming to terms with what happened through shamanism, I would say. Yeah. A lot of people around mainland Korea still see it in a negative light, shamanism. So is that the case on Jeju? I think some people do, but uh, I think a lot of... Uh, uh, people who practice Protestantism, perhaps. Uh, the Catholic Church in Jeju kind of tolerates it. They're not uh, very vocal against it. Maybe they have been in the past, but um, they don't really criticize it too much. Uh, the practitioners of, of Buddhism embrace it and understand it. Uh, there, there's a big understanding for that here that maybe there's not on the mainland. But yeah, I, w- I would say there's a very uh, small minority that, that thinks it's uh, an evil thing. Or uh. Where does the general difference in attitude come from for Jeju people versus mainlanders? Why did it develop differently here? <laughs> 
these questions, these questions are, these, these, you know, I have a lot of personal experiences with people in villages and, and kind of, uh, a lot of these questions, you know, there are uh, leading theorists that theorize about things, but with, with little evidence, or they just kind of, uh, you know, they, they try to understand the situation as they can and, and analyze it. Um, my analysis is that Jeju was isolated, and the mainland, that kind of... Uh, attitude against shamanism reached Jeju City, but it didn't really reach the outlying areas. Even if it did, it wasn't enforced uh, so much. So I think Jeju was just kind of a forgotten place, and, and that's why it... I think, the, I think the elderly people got a sense that our country is moving forward and we have to step away from this, and they want to, you know, kind of... Uh, influence their children to move away from it and and leave the villages and and uh you know go to school and 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 give up farming and fishing and embrace a better life but i think all in all the yeah i think all in all it's it's a forgotten region and it's just an accident in a way you know in in and people did there are incidents where people fought for it and i think they are fighting for it now but i i think that I think it was a lucky accident in a lot of ways. It's just a, a um, it hasn't been very popular to settle here or to visit this place until just the last few years. You know, they've had a couple waves of immigration from other poverty-stricken era, era, areas, but um, yeah, I think that it was. It's just a geographic thing. Tell me about your preservation efforts with the Sulsamit Shrine. It was desecrated this winter. Solsemi Shrine, uh, there was a small article in a newspaper about a shrine that had been desecrated. And uh, I wanted to go check it out. Um, the newspaper didn't publish uh, pictures of most of the destruction. It was just like a little blurb with uh, kind of a far shot, far away shot of the shrine itself. It's, it's in the forest, it's kind of hard to see. So when I saw that article, which was a couple months old when I saw it. Uh, I, I rushed out immediately with my camera. Um, I, I didn't. I wanted to catch whatever had happened in the state that it was in. I didn't want to, you know, take the chance that uh, that someone would clear it out or that I would be able to miss the situation. So I showed up there, and there were, you know, it's it's kind of located in a mountain area surrounded by a bamboo grove. And I hiked back to the area. Pretty hard to find. It's in a village that was destroyed during the April 3rd uprising. So um, there's no village in, there in that area anymore. So I went into the shrine and there were six or seven huge trees that had all been cut down. All the offerings had been smashed. The walls of the, of the shrine, uh, kind of made out of concrete, had all been smashed down with a hammer pretty hard job like this job would have taken several you know hours to complete um so it was a pretty severe situation and and I decided to start asking around uh locals and to see you know what the situation was why had this happened any idea who the culprits were uh the villagers say that it was a protestant church in the area in the area and uh i i kind of buy that um i i asked questions on and off for over a year and uh i kind of get a feeling um of 
of the church that may have been responsible. There's no way to tell. I mean, it could. There's a lot of development going on there. Uh, a Chinese uh, business has bought land that used to be public land, used to be designated as public land up the road um, on the mountain there, and they've started a uh, kind of sapling farm. And so there's that, and then, you know, down the street from the shrine, there's uh, a couple Protestant churches as well. And, uh, yeah, the, the police did an investigation, but there's no certainty. So what, uh, what have you been engaged with, with uh, preserving the shrine or, or calling attention to it? Yeah, I mean, that's the question that needs to be answered. Um, when I went to ask questions, I, I figured out, okay, so you have this village on the mountain that, you know, was destroyed, raised in the massacre. Most of the villagers were killed. There was a certain amount that escaped. A lot of the, some of the women were, were killed, but some of the women were allowed to, to escape. I this don't, was back in 4-3. This is back in 4-3. Exactly, yeah. So they, you know, I found out where the women went. They all went together to, to a couple different villages, the women who escaped. So I tracked them down and I talked to them about the situation. And they were all pretty heartbroken about the destruction of the shrine. And I realized that this is, uh, you know, I found out this is an ongoing war between this Protestant church, basically, and the local population who still worshiped at the shrine. So right after the massacre, a preacher from the mainland moved into the village, and they cut down the original uh, trees in the shrine and destroyed the altar then, taking advantage of the situation that the people had been run out or killed, you know. And this was back in the day. This is back in the day. So this was, and I don't have too many more details on who this person were, although it, it's definitely possible to get the details. There are people in the village who know, you know, the family and, and, and whatnot pretty intimately. So anyway, that man died a couple years after that. And there's a legend about the shrine that he, that the shrine gods basically killed him for his attack on the shrine, which is kind of something that comes up in, in Jeju shamanism. There's a lot of uh, people who did something wrong to the shrine and, and had to pay, you know. So, okay, so, yeah. something different. Shamanism mm. is partly about creating and sharing myths and mm. telling stories. So tell me a favorite myth that you've learned. Favorite myth uh, that I've learned? I would say uh, I quite like the story of uh, the shrine in Wasan. In Wasan village, uh, there's a stone. It's a, it's a big volcanic stone that uh, kind of is seated at the situation at the, uh, the bottom of this forum, you know, this volcanic hill in Jeju. And uh, the villagers say that that stone used to be up on the mountain. But uh, the shrine myth goes like this. Uh, you know, long ago in mythic time, there was one villager, a Mrs. Kim, you know. And Mrs. Kim was uh, pregnant, but she had to make her, her you know, bi-monthly, like, offerings to the shrine goddess. But it was getting more difficult and more difficult over time uh, because, you know, her belly's getting bigger and bigger. And it's, it's pretty funny in the myth when they describe this, you know. And so at some point, uh, she just kind of stamps her foot when she gets to the mountain. She has to climb the mountain to get to the shrine, to where the rock is. The rock is like the marker of the shrine. And, you know, she says, you know what, I'm not going to go up that mountain anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, and she says to the shrine goddess, uh, you know, please come down to me. You know, I, I make my offerings every month. I'm, you know, very devout to you. 
and you see how we suffer, you know, you see how us humans suffer and you see that, uh, you know, this is a very difficult act for us to perform, to come up to the shrine, you know, to, to make offerings to you. So the woman had a, a particularly fierce character and I think that's what villagers like about, you know, the heroine of the myth. So that night she goes home and she goes to sleep and there's this uh, great sound of uh, thunder and lightning and she comes out a few times and is woken during the night to look outside and she thinks, oh, what a fierce storm, you know. She goes back to sleep. In the morning, uh, she's kind of tired, you know, so she slept in and in the morning she hears a big commotion. You know, oh, the goddess has come down to the village, you know, just like you asked. She's come down to the village to meet us, you know. And so, uh, you know, she goes out and lo and behold, there's the stone in the middle of the village, you know. So from that day on, the villagers started worshiping at that stone, which they still do. And so if you go to that right now, uh, the, the shaman, that's an element of shamanism too, where the shaman takes on the character of the person from the myth, sometimes the god or, or just the, the person from the myth. So uh, if you go to that right, you can actually see the shaman walk to the base of the hill and yell up the mountain for the goddess to come down. You know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a moving story. I mean, the, you know, uh, a lot of times the women listening, listening to it cry and, and, you know, that's, that's a neat story, but there's, there's so many, I mean, all of the, I think all of the shrine myths are like perfect stories, you know, made to have a, a the certain effect. Right. You know? They're for an audience. Yeah. Yeah. How many years have you been actively engaged in this research? It's been three and a half years. Okay. Yeah. You came here nine years ago. Mm-hmm. Nine years ago. So, yeah. How did your engagement with this begin? Uh, how did it begin? I, uh, I had an idea to make a film, uh, which I'm not a filmmaker, and, and I don't have any experience with that before this. But I knew a couple Korean friends who had graduated from art school, and they had film degrees. One worked as a professional editor, you know. And they were kind of in Jeju without a project and not really doing much, you know. So I came up with the idea that, hey, we should make a movie and uh, we should do something about Jeju ghost stories because I'd heard, you know, so many ghost stories, spirit possession, you know, all this stuff that was really curious. And, and when I would ask people about it, they really couldn't tell me too much about it, but they knew that there were these esoteric things going on. So it wasn't really about shamanism at first, but one of the one of the things I wanted to delve into was the snake worship, the snake deity worship in Jeju. Yeah, so that was one of the things I wanted to delve into, and uh, that led me to a shrine in in a village, and I'd done a little bit of research about the myth, you know, which I kind of considered another ghost story at that time in that village. And by this time, at, around that time, the team kind of uh, they fought with each other. And they kind of broke up, but I kind of decided I would just go go ahead and do the project myself. But that day in that village, I went with a Korean friend who is pretty well educated about shamanism and 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 these types of things. And she told me, uh, "There's no way that the villagers in this village are going to know this shrine myth." Still, you know, that was a long time ago. Like people haven't practiced that stuff for a hundred years. So within five minutes, it was literally like five minutes, first person we asked, 
there were people running around going to get other people who might know better and I was we were surrounded by like 10 elderly people all telling us different versions of the myth and they you know you've got to go to this person's house and talk to this person oh it's so great you want to know about you know our traditions and I knew at that moment I, I was just overwhelmed I knew that there was like a huge thing to uncover here that, so that from ghost yeah. stories to accidental cultural preservation that <laughs> sure. was the moment you were like I'm all in uh, can, completely, man. Completely. Yeah, there there was a specific moment. And, and my friend was amazed, too. She was taken aback. I kind of knew that something like that would happen because I had another... There was one summer where we were out looking for uh, these kind of Mongolian walls, just me and my buddy Sam here. And I remember, too, we were with a Korean friend then, a Jeju friend, and uh, that friend told me, oh, no one's going to know, remember where those walls were. And I said, well, let's ask the older people and see. Sure enough, they knew, you know. So I kind of had a feeling about it that this would, that there would be people um, who, could, who could tell us more than we thought. But it was overwhelming. I mean, it was amazing, you know. And in fact, a lot of the people in the village still worship the snake deity. And, and I was able to witness that and, and get involved in those people's lives. And, tell me a little more about yeah. Spirits, your documentary. Spirits is a... Uh, sampling of five different villages out of the 20 or 30 that still uh, that still worship uh, that still practice shamanism the kind of pure practitioners I was talking about and uh, with a couple villages too for contrast in villages that where shamanism is kind of faded out so I'm kind of interviewing the the last you know living practitioners in those villages but it's just kind of uh, uh, right now. It's it's a series of basically five shorts about five different villages and and just kind of an aspect of shamanism in that village. But it, especially what I'm trying to show is I'm trying to show in these shrine myths how uh, the individual's life is mirrored by the myth itself or vice versa. Um, for example, in in Wasan village with the stone, right? The, the pregnant lady goes to worship, you know, she demands of the goddess uh, to come down from the mountain and come down to the village. In that very village, I met a lady who was a survivor of, of the massacre in April 3rd. And she told me a story that very much reflected the kind of willpower and the situation even that the pregnant woman in the myth was in. The woman was pregnant during the massacre. She had a sick son, and she had nothing to offer to the shrine goddess. And she told me this harrowing, you know, kind of story that took place over a year. And, and you know, she really had to fight for survival during that year. But a lot of what allowed her to make it is her kind of faith in the, in the shrine goddess, you know. And there's a lot of parallels between the myth and herself. So you can find those parallels in almost... All, any village, you know. I mean, the, the stories are perfectly designed and tailored over time to, like, kind of uh, perfectly appeal to, you know, the generations that believe in that. You're releasing a book mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks. Uh, coffee table book with photographs of what you've seen over the last few years? Pretty much, yeah. It's, uh, it's a book. It's about 220 pages. Um, lots of I took about 10,000 photographs during that time, and this is just kind of like a sampling taken from that photograph. So I chose about 
25 villages maybe that you know the documentary covers just a few villages so and it's my uh kind of personal insights and anecdotes about each village but also i'm trying to educate people on the different meaning of the different objects and the different practices that you see in the shrines so i give an overview of, of a, a basic overview of the religion as well how did it come about <clears throat> It came about because I needed a break from editing the documentary and I had all this material that was just going to kind of sit there, you know. I'd been to so many places, but when you make a documentary, every scene has to be so precise. You have to cut everything just perfectly to work. You don't you don't really have an ability to kind of get everything in. You know, you can kind of choose like representative pieces, but you can't really tell the whole story. So I wanted to show more of what I've seen, and I think it's important for people to understand how variable the practice is in different villages. What do you see for the future of shamanism on Jeju? You know, in when I started making the documentary, uh, the younger people weren't really embracing shamanism at all. But about a year and a half ago, two years ago, some of uh, Jeju's counterculture has started to embrace it. Some have started to... Uh, even practice it in kind of their own way, in their own artistic way, uh, kind of, kind of in a hippie way, perhaps. Uh, the protesters at Gangjung Village, they're protesting against the uh, the naval base that's being built there. Their new strategy really involves implementing uh, shamanism, so that'll be in the documentary as well. Um, I'm kind of uh, exploring what they're doing over there. Uh, they have their own shrine conflict there where the Navy tried, the construction people building the Navy base tried to destroy a shrine, but they actually like physically stopped them. So um, they're really embracing shamanism. A lot of the youth is. There's more government programs than ever before. And then even some of the more mainstream people are becoming more aware. Even if they're not embracing it, they're becoming more aware. So who knows? Who knows? But it's it's a really damn hard thing to do to become a shaman I mean like shamans in Jeju memorize 30 to 40 hours of myths uh, plus they have to be able to play instruments they have to be the right personality to kind of engage in counseling I mean it's not a it's not a popular like choice of occupation so uh, yeah so you've got two things going you've got you've got like the counterculture embracing it and you know the the kind of mainstream culture becoming aware but then the idea that the practitioners and the shamans themselves will pass it on to a next generation that's going to be a pretty difficult feat to pull off um, but but it's open who knows who knows where can people find more information on your work uh, they can go to my blog which is called pagans we are yeah and uh, they can go to my, uh, my uh, Facebook page as well, Pagans We Are. So just type in Pagans We Are at Facebook, you'll find it. That's the Korea file for this week. You can pick up a copy of Spirit's Jeju Island Shamanic Shrines at Art Scenic and Space What in Tapdong in Jeju's Old City, or online at paganswear.wordpress.com. New episodes of The Korea File are up every Wednesday on iTunes and Stitcher, and as a feature contributor at eslrok.com, koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and blogtalkradio.org. 
Tune in next week for interviews and live music from the 12th edition of the Stepping Stone Indie Rock Festival in the Diamond Ballroom at Hamduk Beach's Damyang Resort. From Duck Soup Village on Jeju Island, I'm Andre Goulet. Thank you.